Mac Power Users, episode 543, a developer summer with underscore David Smith. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks, joined by my fellow co-hosts, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hey, David. How are you? Good. I feel like this week is kind of putting the capper on our WWDC coverage. You know, it finished up last week. Uh, we were able to talk about it quite a bit um, during the, you know, during WWC. And then we talked about our betas last week. This week, we thought we'd bring in somebody who has a unique and interesting perspective on it. Welcome back to the show, David Smith. Thank you. It's a, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I mean, I was a, it's, it's an honor to be on Mac Power Users. So I'm glad to be able to kind of come and I guess, lend a developer perspective to all the announcements that we just had. I, you know, I was thinking that you would be the perfect guest for it, but I'm like, hey, we just had him on. And then I looked and it was 2017. So <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> I don't know what happened there in my head. But, uh, th- yeah, you know, uh, David, you were telling us before the show started, how many WWDCs have you participated in now? So I believe this is number 12 for me. My first one is in 2009. Um, and I've uh, essentially attended in some form ever, ever since. So it's been like this regular fixture in my family that as far as my, like, in which as like that's just longer than my children have um are old so like from their perspective yeah. daddy always disappears <laughs> for a week in june like that's just a part of a part of life that i'm sure they expect happens to every father in the world they just june is when they go to california but that's it's, it's just it was a very unusual year to just to actually just stay at home and be here but sort of not here like i would did kind of a staycation in the basement to uh, just a I have to shift myself onto california time and then also just there's so much to do um, but generally speaking, it was definitely an, an, a different year than all the others that I've uh, had the privilege of experiencing. Yeah, I mean, as someone who's been at WWDC with you, I think we one year we stayed together in the Relay Commune. Um, we did, yeah, yeah. The, um, but I, I feel like you are somebody that really always, in my observation, takes advantage of WWDC. You're always hustling to get to meetings and and get the content, and I feel like. You are, in my mind, for lack of a better term, a lunch pail developer. You just show up and you get the work done. And I've always appreciated that about you. So uh, let's talk. You know, you watched it from home this year. I guess, uh, <laughs> how was that? Uh, it was different. I mean, on the one hand, it was kind of nice to be able to, like, like my wife sat next to me on the sofa and we you know, like watched it on our big TV. And it was it was kind of nice to share that with her because, well, we sometimes will do that for things like iPhone announcements or you know, other Apple events throughout the year when I'm not in California. Um, you know, she's heard me talk about WDC many times. And WDC announcements are the ones that I like kind of lose my mind and be super excited. And like, it's in a way that is unusual, that it's, it's not obvious as to, you know, with an iPhone announcement, it has a cool new camera that's like kind of clear and accessible, but like I'm losing my mind over some minor thing that they just mentioned and she has no idea. And it was kind of a fun thing, I think, for us to be able to share that. Um, but it was definitely a bit odd to uh, then just like, I just like, you know, I watched the keynote and then I like go and sit at my, at my, regular desk in my regular office and I can download all the betas and like get started right away rather than like frantically trying to eat like an awful box lunch in between the keynote and the state of the union. And then like sometime later, somehow try and get the um, betas installed over, you know, potentially not so reliable Wi-Fi. And so like, it was definitely a very different Monday uh, for WWDC than I'm used to. Though it's like overall, I kind of liked it. Like it was kind of nice. Like I felt like I was super productive, like in a very intense way, which um, I definitely took the weekend to recover from. But 
it was, it was different, but in a good way, I think is like the best summary for how, how sort of the general overall feel of WWDC was for me. Yeah, the general takeaway I get talking to developer friends is like, it was a more more organized week, easier to get information, easier to manage betas and find out what, exactly what's going on because you're not kind of in the thick of it. But it was, you know, less useful in the terms of direct access to Apple engineers. Maybe. I, I'd say from my experience, like, so like they had labs this year, which is, so a lab is a typically, typically at WDC, they have these big sessions where Apple engineers are available to attendees who you can go and just ask your questions, which is the one time a year typically where you're able to act, interact with an Apple engineer because typically they're, you know, locked away in Cupertino and can't talk about anything related to what they're working on. But this one week they get kind of let out and are allowed to do that. And I was very curious to see what they did for the labs experience this year. And it worked well. Like I think I attended five or six labs and they were just kind of like voice conference calls. Um, and I could share, I could share my screen to the, you know, sort of to the call if I had some code I needed to show them or something I wanted them to kind of look at. And by and large, that process was actually very efficient. And from like, I kind of liked to the way they structured it is, I mean, they were available to anyone who had a paid developer account. So I don't know how many people that is in the world, but it is almost certainly, you know, probably millions, if not uh, like tens of millions. And it was, but you just kind of, you signed up, you submitted a question and they kind of reviewed them the day before and assigned you to a lab uh, based on you know, A's. Like, do you, did you actually seem like you had a reason, a, a question that's useful and um, you know, effective to answer? And it was to the, you know, were you asking, asking it to the right lab or the right place? Um, and if you did both those things, like I was able to get my labs and I got my questions answered. And so that was actually kind of cool. I think the only part I missed was really like, like you're talking about like the, you know, it's like staying at the the relay commune or having that kind of that sense of community and being around other people like that, that the intangibles of being on site in, in San Jose was something that I certainly missed this year. And that's a tricky thing to quantify though, because I think in most other ways, the con- like the conference was better for being virtual like the session videos were better and they were more accessible in the sense that they're available immediately to everybody they all have full transcripts that are searchable and so um, are accessible to just both from an ex- a accessibility perspective of pers- people for people for whom listening to a, a, a video is difficult they have the transcript immediately available and they can do watch closed captioning um, as well as just like it's equally accessible to everybody, irrespective of if you have the, the means and the resources and the ability to go to San Jose um, or not. You just if you have an Internet connection, you have exactly the same um, connection. And then like all the content was super polished, um, too, which was really nice. Like the videos were just perfect. There was no demo but problems. There was no issues like everything was like polished and refined to a level um, that was kind of refreshing in a way that, the, you know, the old session videos the, the Apple really teaches people how to give presentations, but still it's, it's, you know, it certainly is a difficult thing to give a presentation to a, a room of, you know, potentially thousands of people that's kind of intimidating and you only get one take at it. Uh, whereas this way it felt like much more just sort of polished and relaxed in a, in a good way. You talked about having the means to go there and that's something that, you know, people need to understand. I mean, the developers are small businesses. I mean, most of them are, I mean, I know there's some large ones, but it's a significant expense to take a week off and pay for the the flight costs and increasingly ex- exorbitant hotel costs to stay there for a week. Oh, sure. I mean, it's at least you're, I think most people who go to WDC, you're, you're talking at least four or five thousand dollars, three of like three, maybe if you are really um, like, you know, you're staying a little bit of far away, farther away from the convention center or 
really you know sort of finding ways to cut down your costs but it's it's certainly expensive and i think that is something that i really appreciated about this year is that it's it's kind of nice that it wasn't in, in any way exclusive and many of the aspects of wdc typically are optimized for the people in the room which is, in normal years about 5000 people and so in a developer community of millions it's kind of in a weird way it's kind of like optimizing for the wrong group that it's like it should be the best experience for the 99.9% of people who are not there rather than optimizing for the 0.1% who actually can physically attend um, and so that's I think that the, like the accessibility and the how kind of I love how egalitarian in many ways that is like if you have the energy and the effort to want to go there and really focus on the videos and download them all and like be there day sort of day one like I was last week like good on you you can do that and you are in, in no way behind somebody who had the who was able to go um, and to you know to, to be in the room so I, I really like that kind of accessibility aspect. Because, you know, I started out as a small developer with like, it was just me and my laptop and I'm still just me and my iMac Pro, but it's, you know, there were times when it's like, this was very much my side hustle that I was trying to get, get off the ground and I had to fit it into kind of other consulting work. And it's kind of nice to like, to think about, if I think back to those days, this format would have been way better for me. Um, rather than like, I remember for the first time I went to WWDC in 2009, it was a big deal and it was a, like, it met so a significant cost for me and my family. And like, at the time, actually it was like, we had just had my son, like he was I think three months old when I went and it was just like, I like, but it was this thing where I felt like that was the only way that I could really have the, have the experience that I needed in order to get my business up and running. And so I had to do it. And like, I don't regret doing it, but I kind of like that if you were, if I was in that circumstance and this is the, the format, I wouldn't be in that place that I would have had to make that hard choice. Yeah. The the longer we get from WBDC now, you know, a couple of weeks out, the more I think it's going to be virtual from here on out. I mean, the benefits are just so clear in my mind why Apple would want to make this a, a new chapter for WBC moving forward. Yeah, or at least certainly that they're going to have learned a lot of lessons from this. And mm-hmm. there may be some hybrid model where like WWDC turns into like a two day event that's mostly focused on the press or like those kinds of things where it's less of this kind of sprawling week long thing. But I don't know. Yeah, I, I think I got to imagine they appreciate having this opportunity to try this and see how it went. And they would never have like they, they have the cover to experiment. And I think it went re- the experiment worked out really well. And so hopefully they're going to learn from that. And I mean, I think Craig even said so much in some of his interviews mm-hmm. is that like they, they really like having the, the ability to take in this information and see what it was, how it, how it turned out. Well, it's got to be a lot less stressful for their engineers. I mean, I have Apple engineer friends who speak at WWC and like you have lunch with them the day before they speak and they're a basket case because these are people that aren't used to speaking, you know, and they put this tremendous amount of energy into these things. Whereas when it's a pre-tape thing, if you make a mistake, you just re-record that. And it's like, it's probably takes a fraction of the amount of time for them and they can get on with their lives. But the, the downside though, I mean, I mean, without a doubt, one of the factors in your success, and it's, it's just a factor. I mean, obviously David, you're an extremely talented developer with all the apps you've made. Um, but, you know, these relationships that you make and going to WWC, I would argue, is a big help. I know for me, it's a big help um, getting to spend time with people like you. And um, I do I do think I'll miss that if that's what we end up with, something that's always virtual. Same. Oh, sure. 
Yeah, and and, and though that's the part that is in many ways most potentially recreatable by other events. Um, yeah. And like I think about how like some of the best connections that I ever made in the developer community, I think I actually made at the Singleton Conference um, that was in like Montreal for a couple of years. And it was very like Apple focused. And I just like that was the place that I because it was sm- in some ways. One thing I like about smaller conferences um, is they I think have an environment that is better for making real connection because it's only typically, you know, it's, it's 200 people. And so you actually get to know those people in a way that when it's thousands of people and you're, it's, it's just, it's too much at a certain point. Um, so I think, I think that, you know, WGC is certainly, I've made some great connections there too, but I do kind of also in the back of my mind think some of the best connections I've ever made were at smaller conferences. And so like that is something that it might kind of feel, be able to fill in that gap in a more effective way. And it's also much more accessible because usually those are able to be much closer to where, uh, where you are. So, you know, if there's some kind of meetup or, or, or conference that you don't have the sort of huge overhead of travel costs associated with it, um, that can also really help making it sort of accessible to people. So I, I'll just, Stephen, I'll just offer my backyard for RelayCon. Okay. Do it in my backyard. Yeah. We can fit a bunch of people in there. Yeah, and then we could all go to the beach afterwards. There you go. That's, that sounds very nice. All right, done. So, David, let's turn to uh, to your work. You're well well known iOS developer, but I, I feel like your work has really focused on watchOS more and more over the years. So, would you mind giving the listeners kind of an update on your app roster? Sure. So I think that is an accurate um, sort of interpretation of my interests uh, as of recently. So I've, I'm kind of, for better, for better and worse, known for having developed lots and lots of apps. I think at this point, the last time I counted them up, I've d- shipped something like 63 <laughs> unique apps uh, to the app stores um, over the last 11, 12 years. Um, and most of them have failed, but a handful of them haven't. Um, and it recently, but I think I've been able to kind of coalesce around, I think I have a lot of experience around health and fitness and around the Apple Watch. And so my main apps right now um, are probably Pedometer++ and Sleep++, which is a step counter and a sleep tracker, first and foremost. Um, and then I recently have also kind of been getting into some more utility type of things. So like I recently launched an app called Watchsmith, which is like a super customizable complication system. Um, or I have... Uh, Calzones, which is a tel- uh, sort of time zone oriented calendar and so sort of has a, associated a lot of actually like complications and widgets with it there. Um, and like, those are my main things. And I have kind of these old, sort of older projects or side things. Like I have a workout app or I have a, a moon complication app or actually run a RSS syncing system, um, which is just, you know, at this point feels a little bit uh, off brand in some ways, but it's like something I use every day. So it's, I'll just sort of keep yeah. it going. And that's Feed Wrangler that's for feed listeners. Wrangler. I, I'm a yep. subscriber and it's it's an excellent service. Great. Yeah. Like it's just one of those things that the nature of RSS is delightfully, it, it doesn't change very much. So like every now and then <laughs> I have to go in and do some work, but like RSS is very much the same thing that it was like a decade ago. So yep. um, I can just keep that running and it works well. But like certainly my focus, and it's like ever since five years ago when the Apple Watch first came out, like I just saw it as a platform that I... I don't know, like I have a passion for, like I really enjoy making it. And I think I also helps that. So when I started working uh, on Panometer++ and getting into step counting was the first time I ever had the experience of making um, a health and fitness related app. And the experience of that is just so rewarding in a way that all of my other projects had never really kind of been. They were like, I can 
you know, when you get a, uh, a, a customer feedback that says like, I, your app was instrumental in me recovering from an injury or recovering from an illness, or it's helped me to lose, you know, like lose 50 pounds. And like, it's, it's the kind of feedback that you, as, as much as I like to think that, you know, my calendar widgets are, you know, changing the world, like they're not affecting people's lives in nearly the same way. And so I think as soon as I saw the Apple watch and I had that experience on the iPhone with step, with step counting, it's like, this is a platform that I think I want to invest myself into that I want to really be an expert in. And it's been a bumpy road. Like watch OS has gone through all kinds of really interesting and weird churns along the way. But, um, I feel like it's a place that I really enjoy working and I like the impact that it can have. And so like, that's where I'm going to keep focusing. And like, I expect most of the summer, like my efforts are going to be on watch OS, um, trying to push the boundaries and take advantage of the things that Apple is opening up there for me. And so I can make my step counting, my sleep tracking, my widgets, my, uh, you know, t- time zone stuff, all of those, all of those features more rich and more capable. Um, but that's like where I love going. And that's kind of where I think I'm settling into as I found my groove as a developer is if I make sort of primarily health and fitness related things, primarily focused on the Apple watch, like it seems like a great niche that I've kind of been able to focus into. Um, and I kind of both, it, it's, it's worked out as a business as well as it's also been really rewarding, um, kind of as a, just as a person. But I'll, I would argue that your health, you go beyond health and fitness. I, I feel like you're almost the watch expert for lack sure. of a better term. I mean, if you go to WWC and you see David Smith walking around, he's the guy that has two Apple watches on because he's usually wearing least, yeah. one beta, you know, <laughs> and the, um, uh, Watchsmith is a great example for me. It's not a health and fitness related app, but it is a, a tremendous improvement to the idea of complications on the Apple watch. I mean, for the longest time, I just wanted something that could give me today's date that 50 year old eyes could see. Sure. And you made this app where you can customize exactly what the complication looks like. And then when you tap it, a whole bunch of other stuff happens. And I, I, I want to talk to you later today as we get deeper in the outline about what the idea of multiple complications does, because I feel like you're the guy. I mean, when I install the sure. beta on my watch, I'm thinking I got to get an email to David because I yeah. want to see what he's doing. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's certainly true. And I think it's, it's a, it's, I, I just love the I love the Apple Watch. I mean, it's a bit of a joke, but yeah, like I am, con- I have, I've entered into the phase of summer where I will have at least two Apple Watches on me at all times, both so so I can run the betas and make sure that I understand what's going on. And then there, are, it is not uncommon in my in my household for me to have like a, you know three or four Apple Watches on my wrist because it's many of the things you can't test except for by doing something. If I want to test a workout mode, I have to do a workout or I want to test a night's sleep. I need to sleep with my watch on. And so if I only get one shot at it, I want to kind of do maximal data collection. So I will sometimes look quite silly with my like, you know, three or four Apple watches on. You gotta do what you gotta do. Yeah. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by our friends at Smile and the excellent Text Expander. Visit textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more and get 20% off your first year. Text Expander boosts your business's productivity by allowing your team to communicate smarter, faster, and more consistently across all of your channels. This ranges from everything from support emails to responses on social media. This app is built with collaboration in mind. You don't have to reinvent common email and message replies every time you need them. You can store them in Text Expander instead. And that means as new information is available or you change your language, you'll know your customers are having a consistent experience no matter what part of the organization they're interacting with. 
You can use these snippets anywhere you type. Slack, Trello, Google Docs, email, web browsers, basically anywhere. Text Expander for Teams makes it easy to manage and share these snippets across your entire company. And because it's available for Mac, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, and iPad, no matter how your employees work, they have access to Text Expander. So once again, visit textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more and show listeners who get 20% off their first year. Our thanks to Smile and Text Expander for supporting MPU. All right, so we're back with David Smith. Uh, by the way, if you were a member, you didn't hear that advertisement. That could be you too. We have a membership now. We talked about it last week. It's now in full effect. Uh, you can have our, head over to relay.fm slash MPU and sign up for membership. And then you can become the uh, a subscriber to the more power users show where you get this show without ads. We're also going to have additional news content. In fact, Steven and I have the first segment of that plan for after today's show. So if you're in the more power users feed, you're going to hear us talking more about the idea of a touchscreen Mac. Thank you for your support on that. If you've signed up, if not, please consider it. David, we didn't talk about what gear you're using. I know you're, you're wearing multiple watches. In fact, let's start with your watches. Uh, what What is the main Apple watch that you wear these days? Sure. So I, perhaps unsurprisingly, I have one of every Apple watch you can kind of imagine, probably. I think I have at least 9 or 10 or 12 currently that I have it like paired to various testing phones. Um, like the main one that I use is the Series 5 Apple Watch. It's 44 millimeters. Um, and that's the one that I'm using as my uh, watchOS 7 beta watch this uh, this sort of this this summer. And typically what I do is for my beta watch is whatever is the most capable Apple watch, um, I try and make sure that's my primary testing watch over the summer because I want to, A, this watch to watch, watch development can sometimes hit be performance bound that they're, you know, either the betas are slow or Xcode's funny or things. And so having as the maximal amount of performance I have there, uh, sort of works out well is also, you know, things, how, if I'm curious how things are interacting with like the always on display, I want to have an always on display. So that's my, my primary testing watch. And then on my other wrist, um, I have a series four Apple watch and this is, um, I think a 40 millimeter, um, all my Apple watches are always the aluminum, the sport one, because I kind of like, I buy so many of them that it becomes hard to kind of justify, um, the added investment in the, some of the more higher grade materials. Um, and, and then, you know, I have, all the other Apple watches you could imagine. And especially it seems like Apple is coalescing around the series three Apple watch being the kind of new baseline watch going forward. So all of my testing iPhones are paired to a series three watch um, to make sure that I can, you know, I do most of my development on the series five or the series four, and then I can easily switch over and make sure everything works well. Um, especially on like the 38 millimeter series three, like that screen is tiny. Um, once you get used to a 44 millimeter series five, like the big rounded screen. So I have to do a lot of work to make sure that I don't make UIs that work well on that one, but don't work at all on the teeny screen of the 38 millimeter. Yeah. And and Apple really has, of all platforms, Apple seems to pull the rug out for watch developers every couple of years. So I'm sure that it's very exciting for you to have to rewrite things quite often. Yeah. <laughs> well, <there's at> <laughs> Hopefully that's over that, now. Yeah. Well, and then thankfully I think they've given us, because we've always had two sizes to work between, there is an inherent uh, flexibility in design that you have to accommodate, uh, uh, sort of adopt. And so it's nice that it wasn't like, oh, the original Apple watches were all 
say, you know, 40 millimeters, and then they jumped to 44, and I had to, like, rebuild things because I had all these assumptions. It's like I've never been able to make an assumption about the screen size, so at least that side is a little bit more flexible. So what are your thoughts on the new beta since you've been running on your watch for a few weeks? Um, on the Apple Watch, I mean, I think I like it. It's, it seems really stable, which is really, I always appreciate. Like, there have been some years, and especially, I mean, Apple, I, I, Apple Watch betas are, they're a, a dangerous place to go because they're just not the quite as robust recovery infrastructure that you have if you like an iPhone or an iPad um, or even somebody's a Mac like if they go funny there's lots of things you can do to recover them if an if an Apple Watch beta goes funny or like you have an incomplete install or something you have to like send it to Apple and I mean in the current situation like I need Apple stores aren't open like I don't even know what I would do if my Apple Watch broke but I've been very glad to see that it seems super stable and like the battery life is lower than I watch OS six, but not in a way that is problematic. Um, it's maybe like five to 10% lower. I would see, um, I would say, and it's, but overall I like it. And I like the, I like the way that they've, they're, they're handling things. But the nice thing too, is most of the, the improvements to watch OS seven are developer enhancements rather than necessarily system enhancements. Um, and so it's now I get the, the fun of the summer is me taking advantage and exploring and adding features to it. Um, there's only you know, like the fact that they added the new dance type and uh, have, was it core training and cool down to the workouts app like that's that's great but it doesn't it's not an external extra big external feature and like other than I think sleep tracking is certainly the only and the whole kind of like sleep mode um, that's the biggest thing that I've just sort of had to get used to um, and I think I'm still kind of wrapping my head around exactly the way they are approaching it and kind of finding a way to f- fit it into my life because. A lot of what it's trying to do is uh, assumes that you have a, have, have a constant schedule, which the last week during WWDC, I've had the opposite of a consistent sleep schedule. Um, and so I hopefully as my life settles down a little bit, I'll be able to kind of set a settle into, into a groove where the, their sleep app makes a bit more sense to me. But overall, I've quite liked the beta on the watch. And I think it's it's a big year for what developers will be able to do. And it's nice that uh, from a system perspective, they seem to have just done more like bug fixes and improvements. And so it's not going to be a, uh, um, we've had a few summers where the, the watch OS betas are just like, you know, like your wrist starts getting warm in the afternoon and the battery, <laughs> battery lasts for like six hours. And you're like, this is not a, something's mm-hmm. not good. This is, this is a bad, this is a bad situation. Yeah. You, you know, it is funny with a little space after WWC, it's increasingly clear to me that even though it felt like a really big year for under the hood stuff, there really wasn't a lot of major change, you know, and let's put a big asterisk for the Apple Silicon. Sure. <laughs> now, but you're not writing the apps on the watch. You're, you're writing them on the Mac. What, yep. what Macs are you using these days? So I do almost all my development uh, on a iMac pro. It's the, I think I got a 10 core iMac pro when they first introduced the iMac pro. And that is where I've been working Pretty much ever since. Um, How's I that holding th- up? It's great. I mean, I uh, I've heard people who have, have had you know, subsequent issues with fan noise or heating or something, but my iMac Pro, it's just it it's just sat on this desk for I don't even know what it is like three years now, and it's been a complete trooper and. Um, it seems just as fast, uh, like it's perfectly sufficient from a speed perspective and I love the display still. Um, and I'm really happy with it. And it's the kind of thing that I, I, I like with the, the interaction, sort of the announcement of Apple Silicon that's like, I imagine at some point there will be an iMac Pro with Apple Silicon and I will replace this with that just for the, you know, I almost certain performance improvements that I'll see as a result. But for the meantime, it's been super stable and great. Um, and I just, that's where I do like 99% of my 
um, desktop computing. It's like I have a 13-inch MacBook Pro that I'll use every now and then, but primarily I use it when I'm traveling and I haven't traveled anywhere for uh, months now. So yeah. um, it primarily just sits, you know, sits like sits on the corner, sits in the corner. And um, like I installed the Big Sur um, beta on it because it's like, well, if, if something funny happens to that, like it's not hurting me right now. And so it's been useful as a development tool, but not really as a, a productivity tool. Now, the last time we spoke, you were all in with the Retina MacBooks and you were just getting the new one every year, but yeah. they don't make those anymore. So at what point did you switch over to the MacBook Pro? Um, it was, I think, once it became clear that the 12-inch the MacBook was going away. And it, like, it seemed like there was this period where it was every year it was getting better. And then they did fit it that twice and then it stopped. Yeah. And yeah. so <laughs> I, it, it, it clearly Apple, whatever, either they painted themselves into a corner or whatever. They just decided it wasn't selling well enough. And like, I still really prefer, prefer that form factor. And I'm very hopeful that an Apple Silicon switch will allow that kind of form factor to re- to come back where I just love the, like, I usually am at, you know, am I at my desk working with a giant screen. And if I'm not, and if I'm traveling, I want the teeniest, tiniest thing that allows me to still get my job done. Um, and I could do that with a 12 inch MacBook. But once that be, kind of became a dead end, I switched over to the 13 inch MacBook Pro because it's physically is it's bigger, but it's not at, at, sort of dramatically bigger. And yeah. so I found that as to be a reasonably good transition. And um, while I, I appreciate that it's certainly faster than a 12 inch MacBook, the, you know, the, the speed is not why I need that computer. It's more for, I, I'm using it on the road for minor bug fixes, or I'm fixing something on my website, or I'm writing a blog post or something like if I'm actually going to be doing work, work, um, even just from an, uh, an ergonomics perspective, I would, I would want to be on a laptop. I want to be at a desktop with my iMac pro, uh, in my proper chair with my nice keyboard and all the things like working. That's how I will work, work. And if I'm on the road. Um, I just need some kind of small laptop uh, that does the job well. This is a repeating theme on Mac Power Users with guests. And I think it's a great idea of really considering context when you're making your hardware purchase. It's like, what are you going to be doing on the road? And that's why a lot of people like iPad. They're like, well, I'm just going to be doing email and some web browsing. The iPad's fine for that. Um, uh, you need to do some development work, but not much. So, you know, you want the smallest and lightest MacBook. But I think a, a great exercise, if you've got a good desktop computer and you're thinking about a laptop, is be honest with yourself about the work you're going to do. It's too easy to say, well, I'm going to do all the same work I do at my big computer, when in reality, you probably aren't. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's the exact opposite. Like, I philosophically like the idea of a tiny laptop, but for what I need my notebook for, it just doesn't pan out. And, it, you know, when I've tried it in the past, I'm like, I always end up on the biggest one. <laughs> um, yeah. But I, I think that's good advice, definitely, to consider, like, what you actually what you actually need. Yeah, but I mean, in your case, the context is you're going to be recording live shows with right. massive amounts of hardware. Right. And you need a computer that can handle that and yep. have the number of inputs to handle that. Mm-hmm. So that is, I think, the same philosophy. Just it means the logical conclusion for you is you need a fancier computer. That's what I keep telling myself. That's what we that's what you tell your wife. Yeah, my, my accountant. <laughs> and what about a iPhone and iPad? Do you do? Uh, are you do? You, are you big iPad user? I don't know. I've never seen you using I'm one. Perhaps the opposite of a big iPad user. Um, I believe, so this is the newest iPad in my house is the first generation of, uh, iPad pro, um, whenever that was like the 12.9, yeah, Yeah. the 12.9, like with the first time they did that big one, I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I, I, I got one to try it. And 
I don't use it on a, a regular basis at all. Um, it is like it gets its primary use is probably at this point. It's like we sometimes we'll take it on vacation with us and watch it, like download Netflix onto it or something. Like it's not a uh, a device that I've ever really resonated with. Like it's just I, I'm kind sure. of either I either I'm, I'm on my I have my iPhone, which I you know certainly use a lot, um, or I'm on my desktop Mac, and I never I've never found a place in my life where. Um, an iPad really fits. And I think there's certainly a big part of that is because I'm a developer and my develop all the developer tools that I use are Mac focused. And so um, the I, I can't do I can't do my my main job on an iPad. And I'm not the kind of like I could do like email or I could do sketching or design potentially, but um, it's usually just more efficient for me to do all of those things on the device that I could also flip open Xcode and, you know, do write some code as well. And so it's never really fit into my life. And so you know, it's like I use a, I use an iPhone all the time. Like you have a, an iPhone, what is this? The 12 Pro, 11 Pro. I don't 11 even know what Pro, they are yeah. anymore. Like whatever, whatever that. But like I usually have whatever the latest iPhone is. I have whatever the smallest version of it is, um, and that's what I use. And um, like I use that all the time. And it's you know, right now I have that and an, a, a 10R, uh, which is my testing. Like that has iOS 14 on it. And I will actually in the same way that I have two, you know, two phones or two watches, like one on each wrist, I will often have all in all summer, I'll have two phones with like one in each pocket, um, just so that I can, like many of many of the features and things you kind of need to use in practical life, but I don't want to necessarily rely on. And so I have uh, like two, two SIM cards, they both have active cellular accounts, and I just can use whichever one makes sense for me. Um, and certainly in the current situation, like I'm at the, I'm at home most of the time, so it's not, doesn't even really come into practice, into play on a practical level, but, um, I, you know, that's usually my current setup and I'll, I'll update my iPhone every single year because I use that device a ton, but, um, I don't see myself sort of getting into the iPad in a big way anytime soon. It feels like, uh, uh one of the themes of the show's underscore skews towards small screens. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Unless he's on the so, desktop and he wants maximum screen. Yeah, though I didn't get a, uh, a, a I didn't get the Apple the, the fancy Apple display yet. So yeah, um, that, 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 if, if I really want to go maximum to screen, that is the biggest dis- display that Apple makes. So one day maybe I will drop the six thousand dollars that it is. Look, to, the Mac Pro is a wonderful machine. Just think how fast your apps would build. That's all I'm saying. If they if they did actually build that much faster, um, that might be a thing. But as far as I can tell, the it would the, build the, 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 in better Mac- style. <laughs> They, they, that's true. That's true. They would build. They would look better while they built. That's right. Um, so I don't know if they would build any faster, but they would look better while they did it. You could put wheels on it, and you know, build going around the house. It'd be great. Yeah, it, I, that is something I could do. <laughs> Just a really long cord. <laughs> you could, you know, you could ride on it while it's building. <laughs> yeah, with the air supply. Yeah, though I will say, like, I think an Apple Silicon, um, like Mac Pro starts to make it more compelling in ways that I could I could sort of imagine myself in the future heading heading in that direction where like the problem I, I ran into when the, like the iMac when the Mac Pro came out I was really excited by like from a that they were that Apple was excited about the Mac again and like really from like a ground up rebuild and reimagining what like a powerful desktop would be but then I look at the specs and the benchmarks comparing it to my iMac Pro which was like two and a half years old at this point and it was like this is marginally faster or better in many ways. Like it's not this transformative experience that I would kind of hope it to be. And what I kind of imagine though, is like in a world of Apple Silicon where there's some just absurd configuration that Apple can come up with, you know, in a Mac pro, and it could even be like 
in the same way that they did a Mac Pro that was focused on so much of it seems to be on video editing, which is, I think, an area that they can really enhance with the current sort of technology they have. Like if they made a developer edition Mac Pro that was all around optimizing Xcode and making builds like instantaneous and all of that, like I'm so there for that, where um, you know, there's like an afterburner card that is like the Xcode card, card and I plug that in and every you know, everything I do on Xcode is super fast. Like that sounds amazing. Um, but I feel like we have to wait and see if that's the direction Apple goes or, if, you know, if the, if, the, if the Mac Pro continues to be more of a specialist tool for specialist trades. And if I'm not in one of those trades, then um, it sort of doesn't make it make a lot of sense. I feel like, um, you know, when you were a little kid and you'd come out and you see presents under the tree that were wrapped up for you and that period of waiting was almost as fun as opening them. And Apple Silicon to me feels like a bunch of presents that may take a few years to open, (laughs) but I mean, I don't think we're going to get the whole roadmap by the end of this year. I think we may get a computer or two and and they're not going to exactly explain what's going to happen with the iMac pro and the Mac pro and stuff like that. But, but boy, it's going to be fun to hear their story once they let us know. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've got a practical question about your gear. How in the world do you charge all this stuff at night? So on my desk, I have a multi-port. Let me count up how many ports this thing has. I think it's two, four, six, eight. I have a 16-port USB hub. Um, <laughs> that's that's a powered hub. And into that, are, I have multiple uh, Apple Watch chargers and uh, lightning cables that are just all coming out of that. Like it's this big mess of white cables coming out of there. And I just put everything that... Um, I need to plugged into that um, overnight. And th- that's how I charge most of them. And then, you know, sort of like the ones that are actually like my day use um, watches. Um, I just, you know, I have a, a charger by my bed side that I put my watch on, like in the so, so sort of, I typically charge before, like before bed and uh, when I'm like taking a shower to wear my Apple watches 24 seven, basically, except for like when I need to charge them. And so I just use the the charging pucks next to my bed and sometimes I'll steal my wife's charger um, when I'm in this two this two watch mode, I'll just sort of I'll they're both in the bedroom, and so I'll just sit there and I'll put you know my watch, my two watches, and my two iPhones on our on our bedside chargers. I think all those white cables wound up like that would drive me nuts. All those watch cables, this gets you. Well, this is the thing that it, this this like a very minor note that only someone like me probably would notice is that there the Apple Watch charging cable has changed lengths like four times. <laughs> oh no. They usually only by like a small amount. So they're not even all the same length, which slightly yeah. drives me crazy. Like especially like the first gen Apple Watch co- co- uh, cord was like a meter longer than all the others. Yeah, and it was then long, got, the first one. Yeah. yeah, like it was super long and then they got shorter and then they've gotten like slightly shorter still. And it's, it's not pretty. It's one of those places where I kind of like having an iMac Pro where I just like, I, I never see it. Like they're all just pushed behind my Mac and these cords just appear underneath the, um, underneath the sort of the bottom of it that I can plug things into. Could you give us a picture for the show notes and newsletter? Sure, yeah. That that sounds like something that would be fun to look at. Yeah, and I can I can pull out all my testing devices and show what the full uh, fully operational testing um, system looks like. You have a fire extinguisher nearby, right? Just in case. You know, the, 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 you know, the, there's I, I have uh, I, I, it doesn't it never gets warm. It's fine. I, I think the nice thing with especially like the Apple Watches is they're actually not particularly high wattage chargers, um, especially because they're doing. Uh, wireless charging or inductive charging so it's it's fine I'm, I've, I've never had any problems with it i mean maybe think that i'm you know a fire hazard 
I mean, for most things, I would say, oh, go on Amazon, find some six-inch cables, but you're not going to find those for the Apple Watch. No. Well, you, you can't actually get them. And I'm actually, I have some, uh, I have, they, have they, they even have a six-inch Apple Watch to um, USB-C cable that Apple recently came out with that um, I have one of those just for my travel set because a lot of my travel stuff I've shifted over to be USB-C based. Um, and so it's convenient to have. I didn't know that. And they also, I, they make a six inch um, Apple Watch, just regular charger that I use as well for when I'm traveling. Uh, and we have one of those upstairs, uh, kind of like in our little like charging nook in the kitchen. So I can have those sh- short charging cables. Um, so it is possible to do the short thing, but it's also the problem of, because I've bought so many Apple Watches over the years, I it seems kind of silly for me to buy Apple Watch charging cables just to make my office look uh, neat um, when I have like a box full of Apple Watch charger cables just because I've bought so many watches over the years. Yeah. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace and enter offer code MPU at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. With Squarespace, you can easily create a website for your next great idea. With Squarespace, you get a unique domain, award-winning templates, and a whole lot more. So whether you want to create an online store, portfolio, or blog, you can do that with Squarespace. It is the all-in-one platform that puts it all together for you. There's nothing to install and no patches to worry about, no upgrades needed. You know, we talk about Squarespace a lot on the Mac Power users because we want to make stuff. We don't want to spend our time making sure our plugins haven't been hacked. And that's what you get with Squarespace, that ease of mind having it put together for you. You don't have to worry about that stuff. Squarespace has got it all covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help. And they let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. And all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. Not only do I use Squarespace to run MaxSparky.com and my legal website, I recommend it to so many friends and family as they're building their own presence on the internet. So my daughter needed to put together a website for a school project. It's only a temporary thing for three or four months, but as you can guess, everybody's home now, so they need a good website. I spent maybe less than an hour showing her how it works and how to turn all the bells and whistles. I came back the next day, and this person had created a beautiful website for the first time in her life. And you can do it yourself. Head over to Squarespace. Their plans start at just $12 a month. But you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com slash MPU. When you decide to sign up, use the offer code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and to show your support for the Mac Power users. We really appreciate that. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash MPU and the code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase. We thank Squarespace for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. So coming off of WWDC, we know that a lot of developers, including yourself, you know, their sort of summer and fall is dictated by what Apple says in June. And I'm curious, sort of on a, a broad scope, and then we can get more specific about this year, what does that timeline normally look like? like? What's a regular summer for you as a developer? Sure. So I think it's definitely true that like my developer year, like in the way that you would hear about like an accounting year, like the developer year starts in June. Um, and typically when WBC is at the, like the first week of June, it's even more strongly this way that like, you know, so like June kicks off. Um, when the developer season starts. And so we get all of our announcements in June and then we just sort of get this regular cadence of betas and updates all summer. 
And typically those come out about every week. Um, sometimes it's every two weeks. It just sort of, there's this, this just depends, I'm sure, what's going on internally with Apple and their um, sort of QA process. Uh, and then usually we'll get the announcement of the new out the, the new iPhones and the public announcement of like the launch date for the new OSs. Uh, we usually get that. I think it's the second week of September, and often launching the following Wednesday for the OS and the following Friday for the um, iPhone. And so then we kind of so from my perspective, my goal usually is to have my updates ready for that by the end of August. That I feel like that's a good safe place. Um, for me to be in terms of things being ready. And then often, usually there's some interesting opportunities that appear at the iPhone announcement that are, you know, there's features or things that are going to take advantage of the new hardware. And so I try to leave myself slack such that I can, if I need to squeeze in a feature at the last minute, I'm not working on the updates I've known about for months. I'm working, I'm able to focus on the new stuff. Um, And then the fall is usually dealing with kind of the new devices, um, any new announcements that happen in the September events, and then also just kind of filling out that because as much as I'd like to, you know, I never am able to get everything done in the summer that I, li- I would like to. Um, and that's sort of with the goal of trying to be every- having everything buttoned up and ready by December, um, which is still, um, especially on the Apple Watch, is a big time of year. Um, like I see massive jumps in uh, Apple watch adoption every single Christmas day. Like I, if I look at my analytics, there's always this like step function that happens, um, from December 24th to December 25th. And so I always try and make sure that all my apps are kind of like in a good state and featureable and like people want, it's like everything's ready so that if there's this big influx of users, um, in sort of the, the end of December, beginning of January, that I'm kind of ready for it. And then the rest from there, the, the year kind of tends to wind down back towards the next June, where it's a lot more kind of exploratory features or being creative, or if I'm ever going to launch a new app, it typically, um, the most likely time for me to do that is going to be kind of in that early spring timeline where um, it's kind of, I'm not dealing with compatibility issues like I was over the summer. I have this kind of fresh time that I can work on new and interesting things. And then like gearing up for the next June and sort of like the cycle continues. And that's the way it's been going, you know, for years and years. I want to touch on something you said about sometimes new hardware unlocks ideas. If I remember correctly, Pedometer Plus Plus, that came about with the motion tracker on the iPhone 5S, right? Do I have that history correct? That is exactly right. And it's the best example probably of that kind of this opportunity presenting itself um, and trying to just jump on it. And so like the iPhone 5S was announced and there was one slide and it's like Phil Schiller just like mentioned that it has a motion coprocessor that can um, do motion capture and then it like moved on and there was no mention of it and there was no actual documentation for what this feature was or how it worked um, that I could find. But there was some like information sort of if, in from a technical level, like there's like the actual documentation, which is like the written words. And then there's the code documentation, which is more machine generated. Like I found a few things that I needed in the machine generated stuff. And I dove in and just decided I wanted to build a step tracker and I had didn't have any hardware. So I just started using, like, basically making some guesses about how the system worked based on how the documentation that I could glean looked. And this was over the course of just a couple of days because then the iPhone was coming out shortly thereafter. And it's like, I got up in the middle of the night, went to my local Apple store and camped out overnight so that I could get a 5S first thing. Um, got my got my 5S and that, you know, it's like, I think the Apple store opened at 10 a.m. And it's like, I've got my iPhone 
uh, 5S at like 10.15, ran home to my office, plugged it in. It didn't work at all, but in like half an hour later, I was able to get it to work properly. Um, now that I had an actual device to do testing, submitted my app, and I believe I was the first person to ever ship an step counting app that used a motion processor uh, on the iPhone as a result. And like that app has just continued to develop and grow from there. And certainly like the first version of it was kind of awful and super much, you know, super a rough, jo- a rush job, but it, um, like it's such a, whenever Apple does that kind of a thing where there's this new piece of hardware or this new capability or this new thing, it's both, uh, that's so often is a great opportunity because I think Apple is excited to promote and feature apps that take advantage of the new stuff. And it's just in the same way that if you, if you just bought a brand new phone and it can do this new thing, you want it to do the new thing. And so if you find out that your phone can do step counting, you kind of want to have an app that can do that. And so, um, like I try and make sure that I have as much capability in the fall as I can. So that if those things pop up and like, I fully expect my guess is this, this year's watch is going to have some new and interesting things. And I want to be able to take advantage of them as soon as I can. And that's the trick. One of the tricks for you of WWC, the reasons you're so active and on top of things is you're looking for the next pedometer, right? Yeah, exactly. Like I'm looking for, I think, and I think it's a good opportunity for being a small developer, like in, in terms of like, I'm, I'm just, I'm a one man developer shop. Like, uh, you know, I have people who help me with uh, customer support and accounting and things like that. But from a development perspective, it's just me. And one of the things that I have as an advantage, I think from that is that I can, I can work on whatever I want and I don't need to have a like approval or design process or this big, like complicated thing. If I see an opportunity and I just want to run at it, I absolutely can. And that kind of like that nimbleness and flexibility that I have, I think has really helped me to be one of the, like a first mover in a lot of spaces that, um, that a bigger company that may eventually kind of come into the space and be able to bring more resources to bear against it. Um, like I, they're unlikely that they're going to beat me to the market because I'm able to just move so quickly. And if they, Apple announces something, I can be right there. Um, and I think that also helps has, has really helped me develop a relationship with, um, some of the people in, within Apple who are excited that I, I, you know, it's like they know that someone, they know someone's going to try it because they know that at least I'm going to try it because I love jumping on these new opportunities, these new features, and I'll try them out and I'll probably build an app or two around them. And some of them will work and some of them won't, but it's kind of fun being a sort of a trailblazer in that way. It's interesting too, because Apple announcements now, I mean, are uh, in relation to the watch. So many of us think of them in context of you personally, like this year they announced that you'll have the ability to run multiple complications with a single application. And that's, that's awesome because in the past, you can only do one. And as soon as they said that, the first thought to my mind is what's underscore going to do now? Cause he's, this guy always has got cool ideas. And it's like, I, I think it's interesting how you have kind of become that <laughs> over the years, really probably not intentionally. Uh, I mean, I think the only intentional part of it is that I have a very, I, I have a very short attention span. Like I, my favorite thing is to work on new things. And so whatever the new shiny is, I have a tendency to dive into that and to want to work on it. And so in that sense, it's intentional. And I think um, that enjoyment means that it's been a sustainable thing that I've been able to do this year after year because um, I still enjoy it. And I'm still excited when like when they announced multiple complications for watches, like I lost my mind and it was like, I'm like jumping around the room and like my wife's like, what are you doing? And it's like, I'm super, you know, it's like, that's the thing that I get really excited about. And so it's fun and exciting to still have those things um, where when I can 
when they announce something new, I get excited. And when I get excited, I want to start making something. And like I, my favorite part of WDC is the number of, whenever I get to like the opportunity to go to like open Xcode and say like file new project. And like, I start working on a new app because I have a new idea or a new thing that I can do um, that wasn't possible before. And that's, I live for that. And so it's kind of, is this virtual cycle of um, I can, as long as I have, they keep making new stuff, I will t- keep taking advantage of it. And I think it reinforces and, you know, it's like Apple likes it when, like developers take advantage of things. And I think I also like, I've certainly heard the experience, heard other experiences that it's nice in some ways for, um, like I, I can often find where the rough edges are because there very often are many rough edges and I can help other developers to sort of navigate the process because I've gone through it first, um, which is often, I think, a helpful thing just sort of more broadly within the community. I think in so many areas of life, not just developing apps though, a great philosophy is to be, you know, have an inquisitive mind, be willing to try different things but also be willing to throw ideas overboard as soon as you're aware they're not working and your ability to do that quickly and focus in on the stuff that works can really, I mean, no matter what you're doing in life can make a difference, but you've, you've really embodied that. What did you say at the beginning? You've had like 60 apps, Yeah, but you know, we're talking about five or six today. It's that sense of trying to like make something that you're interested in and you're excited about and you'll either learn something from that process or the result of that process will be rewarding for you and like while most of the apps like I said like i've i've you could look at it as though that i've launched like 55 failed apps which sounds bad like that sounds like a negative thing that was like i should that was a waste of my time but for every one of those apps i've learned something and i now have a new tool in my tool belt and there are many times that I will go back still to this day and I will pull like little snippets of code or things from some of those applications that I made that never went anywhere that, you know, I launched and maybe they sold a few few copies and then like crickets. No one ever cared about them ever again. But the process of building it is how I'm now able to adopt technology really quickly. And like I've developed the skills and the, it's almost like the muscle memory of how to do this by having lots and lots of repetitions and by really working at it. And I think anytime we like with, with, with any craft that you have to, it takes a certain amount of just pure repetition of doing it over and over again before you get really good at it. And, you know, in the same way that like for podcasting, like if I go back and listen to my early, my early episodes that I did podcasts of, like it's really rough and not great, but once you've been podcasting for, you know, like 10 years, you start to get to the point of like, actually, no, now it's okay. I can do this. I know how to speak extemporaneously and I got better. And I think for me, with, with me, that's been development. But I think the, like the broader lesson of that is definitely applicable to almost any trade where you want to, like, you just have to do it and not worry necessarily that the first time you do something, it has to be perfect. It has to be amazing. And it has to like be the thing that like rockets you to success. It's like, most likely it won't be more likely. It's going to be like, I think my most, you know, I think pedometer was probably like the, the 30 or 40th app I, I wrote. And that was the one that really like went, took off and has been successful and continues to be successful to this day. But like, if I hadn't built the the 30 before it, I don't, I mean, I probably wouldn't have been able or had the confidence to, to, you know, sort of seize that opportunity when it presented itself. Yeah. I remember reading the Stephen King book about writing and he had a peg in his desk where he put all his rejections and there were so many rejections before people actually wanted to, to buy his work. Yeah. Same thing. Yep, exactly. Uh, one part of the cycle is beta testing. Uh, I know some developers have 
basically public test flights, other developers basically handle it in-house. What's your approach in sort of letting other people see what you're working on before it's ready? So I've never done a public beta that I can think of. Um, I Personally, I find that the the overhead of doing that rarely exceeds the benefit that I would get from it. That, you know, in terms of it's, I don't want to like, I guess what I'm going to edit, probably need to like create a Slack or some kind of comfort or forum or have lots of emails or something like it just doesn't seem like it scales very well for a one person developer. Um, so what I tend to do myself is I'll almost all of my testing is just done by me and I have lots of devices and um, I do my best to kind of try things out and then I'll do limited private betas is typically my approach where I will um, give the app to either kind of like friends or family or other developers um, or sometimes there's particular communities that I'm trying to target that I will sort of reach out to and do some work in like it's an accessibility thing or like there was a feature where um, I was adding the uh, wheelchair um, when Apple announced wheelchair mode, I added that to uh, pedometer plus plus, which you think is a step counting app doesn't work for someone in a wheelchair, but Apple made it so they can, you can count your pushes, um, on your wheelchair. And so like, I didn't, I needed people in that community. And so, um, I was able to sort of connect to some Apple watch users who were running the betas and they were able to do some testing for me, but it's usually something like that where there's a, um, a specific, uh, use case or person that I'm trying to, um, sort of sort of work with and then the reality i find too is it's like the the first week of launching an app is like the best beta period ever in some ways and i and i can get gather feedback and i think i've gotten to far enough in my developer career that i am tip i very rarely am surprised by things that launch um these days and there are certainly bugs that get out but it's you know i and, and i feel confident enough about my development process that doing most of the testing myself, I try and make sure I test it on a wide variety of devices and different configurations. And then having like a handful of um, sort of trusted friends and family or other developers who I can connect to and sort of give the developer, go through that process with um, seems to work pretty well. And that I think is much more manageable for me than if I was trying to have a, you know, a a public beta with hundreds or thousands of people on it. Um, It would very quickly just get kind of get out of hand and, so often what's tricky there is it's there's so many different choices that you have to make when you're developing an app and everybody has a different opinion about how something should work and how something should be and so often in the development process like i have enough difficulty navigating my own thoughts about which is the right path to go and if i got 20 different voices mixing into that as well um, i feel like it would be much much harder and i would kind of feel paralyzed by choice at a certain point that um, you know, like there's some people who I can reach out to if I f- am struggling with a design question or with a functionality question or a usability question or accessibility question, and I can get like to- targeted feedback, but, um, I tend to, for, from a beta process, um, not do it nearly as much as I think certainly some developers do. And I, that, that works for me. I, I like, um, keeping myself like keep, sort of keeping it simple and lightweight and not kind of going crazy with it. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I can definitely relate to the idea of too much feedback. And you kind of feel like you can't please everybody. And the reality is in the app store, you're not going to please everybody. And there's plenty of options. If somebody doesn't like, you know, something about your app, they have alternatives, right? You're not there to serve everybody. You're there to make the best thing you can make for as many people as you can make. And sometimes that means saying no to things. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I think, if anything, it also works out well that because I'm a, a sort of an independent developer, I 
my apps have a personality and that personality is my personality and they're built the way that I like them and the way that I things that make sense to me. And if that's not for you, that's great. But I can't make an app that isn't me because like I'm the only one making it. Um, and so it kind of works out too in that sense that I, I, I'm not this, I'm not looking to design an app by committee. I'm looking to have an opinion and have designed things in ways that make sense for myself. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by DevonThink, the flagship product from Devon Technologies. DevonThink is a professional document and information management application for the Mac. Helps you collect, file, organize, and edit all kinds of documents, and you can search and annotate them right there. It can become your digital organizational heaven. You can archive all of your email with the Enhanced Email Archiver, scan paper documents with the revised scanner interface, and even imprint PDFs with custom stamps before giving them to others. One of my favorite features is DevonThink's ability to pull in information via RSS feeds, so I have the entire history of all of my podcasts all in one place. DevonThink lets you organize your documents any way you want. You can create smart groups to create different views of your data, and the integrated AI assists you with filing and searching. It lets you automate your workflow by creating smart rules and flexible reminders to any document. They even let non-programmers like me easily automate many parts of the application, so you can delegate the boring repeating task to DevonThink. You can also sync your data securely between your devices, using your preferred web storage or even directly on your local network, so you can take your data with you with DevonThink's iOS companion app. You can get 10% off DevonThink 3 or upgrade to it now. Just go to devontechnologies.com slash MPU. That's devontechnologies.com slash MPU for 10% off. Our thanks to Devon Technologies for their support of the show and Relay FM. So David, you know, Sleep Plus Plus is one of your best apps. I use it all the time. And um, this year, Apple announced sleep support on the sleep tracking on the Apple Watch. Yep. How'd that feel? <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a funny thing. So I, I've known that was coming forever. Like sure. not, not, not based on like specific, you know, insider, insider information or anything, but it seemed always seemed inevitable that Apple was going to make sleep tracking. And yeah. if I'm honest, what surprised me was how long it took for it to arrive. Um, like my, I introduced sleep plus plus with watch OS two. Um, so this was about four years ago, I guess that it, it sort of launched and became public. And, um, I kept ex- every year. I've always thought that it was going to be announced at either WWDC or with the new watch every single year and it never has. And now they finally kind of have, and you know, you could say that I've, you know, the app's been Sherlocked or whatever you want to say, like app, whenever Apple implements, you know, uh, a third party feature as it now as a system system feature. But because I've known that it was coming and it was always kind of like, I've been planning around and kind of expecting what that was going to be. It wasn't a big surprise. And if anything, honestly, it's a bit of a relief um, that I finally know what Apple sleep tracking solution and approach is going to be. Um, it's a kind of a helpful thing. And if in a weird way, like I wasn't sure, I mean, I never knew how it was going to go. Like if they had built something that totally like eliminated the need for third-party sleep trackers or outlawed it or changed something that would, they were doing something that I can't do and it would make my app look silly. Like that would have been unfortunate. But if anything, the way that they've gone with sleep tracking on the Apple watch, um, I think gives me an incentive to double down on sleep plus plus and continue investing in it because 
they're going to create interest in sleep tracking for the watch, but their solution for it is very sort of straightforward and simple, which is, I think, a good approach for Apple to take as the platform vendor. Um, but as a third-party developer, it means that they've left open this huge range of possibilities that um, I can jump into and I can fill those gaps that um, Apple isn't going to fill. And there's going to be people who are interested in sleep tracking who now have the ability to, um, like, and who even think about their Apple Watch as a sleep tracker. Like, the hardest thing deal that I have to deal with as a maker of a sleep tracker for the Apple Watch is people have the expectation that sleep tracking isn't something that the Apple Watch does. Um, and now Apple's going to say it does. And if you go to an Apple store, it's probably going to have, you know, sleep tracking right there on the thing next to the Apple Watch or up on the wall. There'll be a big picture of like someone asleep with their Apple Watch on, like whatever it is, like they're going to give, get that message out in a way that um, I never could. And so ultimately, like this is the best case scenario probably for me that um, Apple has finally done it. So I have the confidence to continue to investing in this app in a way that I didn't want to like, there's definitely been times where like I never work on sleepless plus right before WWDC or right before, um, sort of like new hardware launches typically, because I always have this fear that it could like that work at work could be wasted. But, uh, the way it turned out, I think this year, um, is the best case scenario for me. And I think that's most often the way this, this pattern goes that like Sherlocking is so often seen as just like this universally negative experience. Um, but I can say from my own experience that generally speaking, like more often than not, it is a good thing for developers, unless what you're building isn't so much, um, it's like, if it isn't an app, it's a feature and like Apple implements the feature. And then now you don't it, like your the purpose of your app goes away. Like if you had made a sleep, a uh, flashlight app, and then Apple adds a flashlight to control center, your, your purpose for existing doesn't matter, just sort of goes away. And so like those kind of Sherlockings can be destructive, but for a lot of these situations where if you have like a rich capability that isn't like one thing, it's very unlikely that Apple is going to uh, build out a feature that kind of totally eliminates the, the need and purpose for your app. Yeah, I kind of jumped over things. If listeners don't know what Sherlocking means, uh, Stephen, you want to explain the the kind of the etymology of a... Yeah, yeah. so way back in the day, there was an app called Watson. We're talking like Mac OS 8 or something way back. Uh, Watson was this app for searching local files on the web, and then Apple shipped Sherlock, which, A, they kind of made a joke of the name, but it looked and acted basically the same way, especially uh, Sherlock 3 in particular was was really pretty brutal copy. Uh, that was with macOS 10.2, I think. So this was a multi-year thing. And so now, yeah, getting Sherlocked is when Apple takes your idea and builds it into the system. But underscore, I like what you said because I was sitting here thinking about how many apps I have on my phone that duplicate, quote, duplicate built-in apps, but in a more powery user kind of way, right? Overcast instead of po of podcast, uh, Instapaper instead of Safari reading list, right? Fantastical instead of calendar. There's it's a huge market out there and there will be people, I think you're absolutely right, who say, oh, my watch can sleep track and they'll be the kind of person that just wants the best thing or they'll start with apples and they'll hit some sort of limit with it because uh, I've seen some reporting on it. it. It's definitely smaller in scope than Sleep Plus Plus. I say, oh, I wonder how I could push this farther. And then, you know, you'll be standing there with your app ready for them. I think it's a if anything, it's an opportunity for developers to make their app better and more robust as opposed to just kind of throwing in the towel. 
I've been running the beta and I was looking at my sleep data in the health app. And if you scroll down, it says sleep plus plus. I mean, your app is essentially advertised in Apple's yeah. health app where they're displaying sleep data. So it really is a, a direct line if you want more data to your app. Yeah. And I think Apple, they they want the ecosystem to be robust and rich. Uh, I think that is clear from the way that they design these things. Like it is not their intention to like come in and like destroy the ecosystem. I think more often like their goal is to like have that kind of rising tide lift all the boats. And I think that is certainly clear in this case that they could have gone in a lot of different directions with sleep tracking and the approach they took is, you know, it's much more focused on building habits and doing behavioral prompts and those types of things, which from a sleep health perspective, I think is actually much more, probably more important. And I think there've been some interesting interviews like Kevin Lynch gave um, to CNET, I think was, I think I'll have a link in the show notes about this, but it was a really interesting article where he was talking about like why they aren't doing all of the like sleep, uh, sleep, sleep segmentation type of analysis that you can do. Say like, you know, you had 17% REM sleep and you had 18% um, slow wave sleep or whatever it might be. Like you can really get deep in the weeds and it's like turning into a sleep study. And he's like, that's actually not usually useful for people. Like for most people, the biggest thing that they need for sleep health is a regular sleep schedule and getting the appropriate duration of sleep. And especially because sleep is a weird kind of health metric because it's not as much in your control. Um, so like if you say you want to close your activity ring, it says like, you know, you're trying to get through 30 minutes of exercise and you only have 25. Well, you can go exercise for five minutes. That's a choice you can like actively and proactively make to improve your health. But sleep is always a little funny because there's only like you can't decide, OK, I'm going to get 26 percent uh, more REM sleep tonight. Um, it's not something you have a uh, choice in. And but the things that you do have choice in are like your sleep hygiene and routines of winding down your, you know, your screen use, um, having a consistent bedtime, having a consistent wake time. Um, doing all of those types of behaviors or even like the cool things they're doing where like if you want to have a kickoff shortcuts so that you can, um, you know, change the lighting in your house or start playing certain music or whatever it might be. Like those are the things that I think Apple is seeing as they have the, the ability to kind of mold your behavior or in, encourage your behavior to be good in that way. And that's ultimately much better and more important for your sleep health perspective. And I don't think any kind of, because they're a first party app, they can do integrations that, you know, any kind of third party like myself isn't going to be able to do. Um, like I can't, you know, turn off your, like turn off your iPhone screen or change settings like that. That's never going to be the case. But what a third party can do is if you're trying to build those habits, I can give you much more clear reporting as to your ability, how your progress towards that is and be able to sort of visualize that data retrospectively for you. And then Apple is focusing less on the data during the night, which may or may not be actually like valid or useful uh, beyond just sleep duration. Um, and like the they're working on the habit side. And I think that's a good balance that they're taking that I think is useful in this context where like, and I kind of like honestly that Apple is being sort of sort of they're being honest about the true benefit of sleep tracking is it's that is primarily about developing good sleep habits because it's not something that you have that choice in. And they're like a lot of, I feel like there's a, dis, there's some sleep apps can get a little disingenuous with the, like the clinical nature of what they're saying, where the like, it's, it was like, you actually, you know, you had these very precise segmentations of how you slept. And it's like, 
you're probably very unlikely that you're pulling that data from what the Apple Watch is doing overnight. Um, at least certainly not in a way that is, is, is like clinically accurate. And so instead, it's like focus on the big picture of like, are you getting enough sleep? And that's um, an answer that I think we can honestly answer. And so I think it's very interesting that Apple is going in that direction and kind of makes sense, I think, based on, you know, they could have gone. It's not like they they didn't go down that road just because they had to. They could have gone down the super clinical route, but instead they're taking that higher level behavioral change rather than just trying to spit lots and lots of detailed data at you in the hopes that that's somehow going to affect your behavior. Yeah. I mean, uh, was it garbage in, garbage out? Yeah. You got to be careful. It's just something you're wearing on your wrist. It's not, you know, it's not strapped to your, I guess it is strapped to your body, but it's not, you know, like the traditional sleep study mechanism. And and we're not asleep. I'm not a, like, I'm not a sleep doctor or whatever. Like, I think it's, it's hard to create, like giving someone, even if it was a clinical level of sleep data, it's the interpretation of that data is tricky and could be based on lots of things and is also uh, often a tricky balance because sleep is something some, for many of us isn't something we have control over. Like if you have young children, it's your sleep is not your own. It's not like you, you can have all the like nighttime routines, kicking off shortcuts to dim the lights and play soft, soothing music that you want. But if an hour later, your two-year-old wakes up with a bad dream, like you're, you're awake. And so sleep is, I think, this different kind of situation where like having more and detailed data is often not actually what you need. And it's just this kind of this higher level things that check. Are you doing the things that you can control that will influence your sleep? And if you are doing those things, then you're you're on the right path. And I think Apple is really focusing on those areas um, rather than the other side that you don't control. As someone whose five-year-old woke up in the middle of the night, I agree with you. <laughs> yep. <laughs> It doesn't end after they're five. I'll just let you know ahead of time, guys. David, just a thought just occurred to me. Someone puts you in charge of Apple for a week, and they're like, you can add one sensor to the Apple Watch. What is it? Oh, gosh. I mean, I, I, like the, the biggest thing that I sometimes struggle with with my Apple Watch is I feel like I wish it had better uh, heart rate data in more contexts. Uh, that I feel like it's very good at certain like steady state, um, like cardio type activities. Like if you're on a rowing machine or you're out for a run, um, it's often very good um, or cycling or something like that, where there's a relatively static, um, uh, you have a relatively static wrist, but I find for a lot of kind of more active and um, intensive fitness reg regimes, I find this it's heart rate tracker. Um, is less uh, is, is just is is, is, less, is less accurate or less consistent, and I think that's something that um, I know you can, you can like you can pair a third party Bluetooth thing to the Apple Watch, but I always find those to be either uncomfortable or um, inconsistent. And I think if I like I part of me, I think it's not even necessarily adding it to the watch, but if Apple made a first party heart rate tracker um, as a little ex sort of extra accessory and did it in the Apple way, um, I think I would. I would, I would love that um, as, as someone who f f very often doesn't doesn't get the data that I would like to see uh, from, from my workout. But um, that's something that I think I would definitely would, would like to see if I see that. Because beyond that, you start to hear these, you know, certainly like there's the rumors of that, you know, at one point they were looking at if they could, could do blood, blood, blood glucose level monitoring in an Apple Watch. And it's like, if they could do that, like that is amazing. Like uh, my father-in-law is diabetic. And if he, you know, had that kind of thing just in a relatively inexpensive wearable that he could have. And even if it's a backup or an augmentation to his other glucose tracking, like that's huge. Or 
um, blood oxygen or those kinds of sensors, like it seems great. Um, but I think really for me, just having more consistent heart rate data would be a, a huge uh, plus though. I will give a little uh, pro tip to the Mac Power user audience. If you ever run into this situation, if you take your Apple Watch and move it from your wrist to your forearm, you have dramatically more accurate uh, heart rate data that will be collected, uh, which works especially well if you have one of the support loop bands where you can kind of adjust the length of it to be really wide. And so you can put it up on your forearm um, and you'll actually get better once you're kind of on the fleshy part of your um, your forearm where there's the, so like your big forearm muscle is, um, I give you much, much better readings there. So that's in case, in case you ever do run into that situation, that's, that's how you get around it. I actually do that when I go to the gym and a question's always occurred to me, maybe, you know, the answer is, should I have the watch facing in on like the meaty inner part of my arm or on the outside, or does it matter? As far as I know, it doesn't actually matter too much. Um, I think primarily what you, what you have, what the Apple watch is doing when it's taking your heart rate measurements is it is looking for blood flow. So it's like just shining a light um, th- onto your skin and, or slightly through your skin, I suppose. And it's looking for like waves that it can interpret as your, the beats of the beating of your heart. And so it really, what you want is just something that has ri- rich blood flow. And so I think as long as it's on a muscle, like if you put it on a muscle, like either on the outside or the inside of your forearm there, there's just more blood flow and more consistent blood flow. Um, and so it's able to get it, whether it's on the inside or the outside, I don't think that's more probably just whatever's more comfortable for you. Um, but I think it's better there than it is on your wrist, just because the wrist doesn't have that kind of rich musculature that the forearm does. Um, and so you get a better reading when it's kind of in that very stable, just stuck onto a big muscle, um, in the same way that you can also put it on your bicep or, um, even I've, I've had reasonable luck on my, on my ankle, you can get a reasonable reading from. Uh, but the forearm, I think, works really well, whether on the uh, t- sort of uh, outside or inside. Though I will say, slightly related to that question, flipping the crown rotation uh, orientation. So you can have, in a traditional uh, configuration, the crown is on the right side of the watch um, as you're looking at it. Uh, but you can have it configured so that it flips it around. So the crown is on the left side and the button will actually be then above. But if you do that, and if you're doing any kind of workout that involves bending your wrist a lot, so say like you're doing like push-ups or something, like for a long time, I kept having my watch accidentally have its buttons pushed. And so you just flip it around, change the orientation, and then that won't happen because the the flat side of the Apple Watch will be towards your hand. Yeah, I did that years ago for the same reason. I would trigger Siri when I was doing push-ups and um, that solved the problem. And I'm so used to it now. People comment on it when they see me like, what, what's going on with your watch? And I forgot that this isn't the normal way a crown works anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm exactly the same way. I've tried it a couple of times and I can't, I can't get used to it. Uh, I, <laughs> it breaks my brain. I would also argue that dialing the crown with your thumb feels more natural. When it's on the left side. You know, it'll, I mean, I don't know. You just have to try it. Yeah. So every time we have someone on Mac Powers, we always like to talk a little bit about apps. And in addition to making apps, you are a consumer of apps. So uh, share some of your favorite apps with us. Sure. So when I when you asked me to kind of come up with a list, I thought of a a couple of things that are a bit more timely, and then some that are just sort of more timeless things that I use. So one is there's uh, the unofficial WWDC app, which is uh, made by Guy Rambo um, and a couple of other. It's an open source app, but if you have have an interest in watching videos uh, related to WWDC, um, this is a tremendous little like it's a Mac app that 
um, is I use constantly that it lets you, has really good bookmarking and you can download videos. Um, and I just, I also like that it lets you change the speed of the playback, um, in a really easy way and remembers your settings with that. And so I can, you know, sort of power through a lot of videos. So if you're interested in wanting to watch some WDC videos, that's a great place to go. Um, and kind of on the other extreme of that is I would recommend this Swift Playgrounds app, which, um, fairly recently even came to the Mac as well. Um, so now it's on the Mac and the iPad that you can use Swift Playgrounds. And if you've ever thought about being a developer or trying development, um, Swift Playgrounds is a really accessible, safe place to go. Um, whereas Xcode, which is like the tool that I use to write my apps, is a very heavy-handed and can do all these things. Like Swift Playgrounds is this place where you, just like the name sort of says, like it's a place to learn programming and to play around with things. And they have some great tutorials. Like I'm working through them with my kids um, right now, actually. And like t- we're having them work on um, sort of learning the basics of programming. And it's a really safe, kind of nice way to do it. And, I on- and I'm really glad that it came to the Mac because um, for me like I said earlier, like I'm not a big iPad person and I feel like developing those skills with my kids on the Mac feels like it'll have a greater translation to Xcode when we get to there um, because that's they'll kind of be used to how to do that. And they're not kind of dealing with the, um, like in in Swift Playgrounds on iPad, you know, you can drag and drop things with your finger, which is great, but it's not how you would do it when you're actually in Xcode. You know, you'd use a a mouse and you want to kind of build that dexterity so I recommend Swift Playgrounds. Can I plus that plus one that one because I I love Swift Playgrounds too. I'm not a developer, but I I treat it almost like a video game. Like when I'm laying in bed and my mind is like buzzing with the day, I like to open Swift Playgrounds and solve a puzzle. You know, as sure. you make these little programs, that's what you're doing, and it's just such a great way to disengage your brain from whatever's bothering you. And um, I don't know, th- this is an app I think doesn't get enough um, get enough love from the community. It's really well done. Yeah, and I'd say on that point too. This this year at WDC, they had a series of puzzles that they published every day. Um, it's like the Swan Quest, I think, is what it's called. If you look for it um, in the WDC stuff, and they have every day they publish this little programming puzzle, which I really enjoyed, just kind of as this little like uh, palate cleanser at the end of the day after this in, like the intensive like hard so sort of like intensive work of programming. I could kind of spend my evening just spending like 10, 15 minutes uh, solving a little programming puzzle. So that's also kind of a fun thing they did in, in, Swift, in Swift Playgrounds this year. Um, and additionally, like, so a little tool that I just, I plug anytime I can is a, an app called Solver for the Mac. Um, I think it's also on iOS, but I only ever use it on the Mac and it's um, a visual calculator. So, uh, or maybe in some ways it's almost better to think of it as like a natural language calculator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can just write out expressions that you're interested in. Like I, I this I use this, constantly when i'm doing programming stuff where i'm you know i'm trying to do a layout and okay if the screen's so many pixels wide and i want it to be so many pixels of padding what does this end up doing you can kind of describe these uh describe with the math that you want to do in words or in equations and you can just kind of keep going with it and it's it's once you once you wrap your head around what it's doing um it becomes this indispensable way of doing kind of basic calculations and a traditional calculator where you're you know punching in the number and then hitting plus or divide um, feels very antiquated and um, silly. So I, I highly recommend Solver. I think they recently came up with Solver 3, but I actually prefer Solver 2 and it's still in the Mac App Store. So that's where I let, that's uh, the app that I use constantly. Like if, if, I, if, like if I open Xcode, the next app I'm going to open is, is Solver. That, now, so this app comes up quite often on uh, from guests and it's like the love child of a calculator and a spreadsheet. But it doesn't look like either one of them. It's it's you really just have to download it and try it. 
I'm the same with you. I use it for all sorts of things because because it's natural language, you can have notes in line or like what you're actually counting in line. It is indispensable for me. And the last thing I think is you asked to mention is like some favorite apps and services. And I was thinking of services, like what services do I use? And the thing that I probably actually use on the most uh, consistent basis recently has been um, the Overcast uploads system, um, which is available if you're a premium subscriber to Overcast. And um, it's just a, a, play, a way that you can insert arbitrary audio data or audio content into Overcast, and it'll just show up next to all your other podcasts. Um, and this is something I especially use often with um, downloading YouTube videos, because um, very often YouTube videos are, they're videos, but the actual video content isn't relevant to what they're what the content of it is. So like, like explainers with some, some animation, but you really could hit, listen to it and learn enough. Yeah. Or even a lot of times there's a lot of interviews. Like I ran into this with like MKPHD did a video, uh, video interview with Craig Federici and like the, it's just an interview. They're just talking to each other. So like, I just took that and I used this, the, the YouTube download scripts, um, YouTube DL, um, and then just ran it through FFmpeg to turn it into an MP3 and just plopped it into Overcast and I could listen to it that way. And it's like, I get all the benefits of smart speed and voice boost and um, that I can speed up the audio in the way that I'm used to. And I've just kind of gotten into this workflow now where anytime I want to, anything where I can turn it into an MP3 and put it into Overcast, I do. And it's like an indispensable part of my like day. And I listen to a lot of live shows this way too. So a lot of podcasts, um, even here on Relay, there are many of them uh, will stream their show live and I record those live recordings and put them into um, overcast uploads and so that I can listen to them sort of right away, but with all the benefits that I'm used to when I listen to those shows. I love that you have your own post-production podcast workflow for other people's podcasts. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Is love the right word? No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Steven, do you download YouTube videos? I, I imagine you as a guy who has like a whole library. Oh, yeah. YouTube I got videos. tons of Apple event videos and stuff. But uh, but I also do the same thing Underscore does. In fact, uh, interviews in particular, I will often just strip the audio out of and throw into Overcast so I can listen while I'm working out or in, in the yard or back when I used to drive places. Uh, I think that's a great tool because a lot of YouTube videos don't have to be videos. What, what tool do you use to download YouTube videos? Uh, I do the same thing underscore does. I do use YouTube DL and then I make it an MP3. Yeah. There's an app I got through setup. I don't remember what it was, but yeah, I tube downloader, I think is a popular one there. There's, there are several out there for the Mac. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dave, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and sharing what you're up to. I mean, I can't imagine how busy you are with all the changes to apple watch and your multiple watches how, how many are you wearing at this moment how many apple watches this is just two right now i mean this is okay. the because uh, i haven't actually built day. any i haven't built anything yet so now i'm just yeah. in the the ambient baseline of two for the summer and then the the additional ones will be added on as i get farther into the development cycle yeah and, and gang if you want to go check out some of david's apps i mean there's a bunch of them uh we'll put a bunch in the show notes but I'll tell you the ones that really stand out for me are pedometer plus plus sleep plus plus. And I'm as someone running the beta, I'm telling you sleep plus plus gives you a lot more uh, data than Apple does. And then uh watchsmith, which I think might be my favorite app you make. I just, it just solved so many problems with complications. It's like, um, and this is a custom complication. You can add your watch. He's got different versions. I'm sure you're going to update that when they update the new uh, watch OS. And it, 
it's just really great. So you can pick whether it shows the date or whether it shows the weather or a bunch of other different options. And then when you tap the complication, it kind of gets you into this backend app that has tons of information and it's displayed on your watch in a way that just makes sense. I, I just feel like you really, that's like for me, the culmination of the David Smith experience, like all this watch programming you've done over the years really comes to bear with that app. Yeah. And it's an app too that I think I'm so excited for this summer for it. Cause like Apple gave me all the things that I wanted for it, that now I can be in, you can install a complication into multiple slots, which you couldn't do before. And I can make complications in Swift UI, which does a very technical way of saying like my complications can do so much more than they used to be able to. Um, and so I'm super excited for what I'm going to be able to do with WatchSmith this summer. Yeah. And the feed wrangler, which is like I said, when Google started, stopped uh, supporting the RSS, you know, becoming the RSS feed in a, of the internet, you showed up with Feed Wrangler and it just works. I mean, I've, I'm, I use it, I've used it with two or three different news reading apps over the years. And once a year, I uh, I get the email from you and send in my check or something like that. I appreciate that. Uh, and also, if you're interested in David's thoughts about development, he's got a show on the, our beloved Relay FM. It's called uh, Under the Radar. Uh, so head over to relay.fm slash radar and subscribe there. Anywhere else people should look for you, David? Uh, no, I mean, those are certainly the places. I mean, my my website is uh, david-smith.org, which I'm probably have a link in the show notes to, and you can have links to sort of everything that I do there. And um, I think certainly this, like this summer, Marco and I are going to have a lot to talk about under the radar. So I think that's another good place yeah. to, to to go and sort of, sort of listen to if you're curious about what, what my thoughts are and where Apple is going on the, on the development side. Yeah, it's a big year. It's a big year. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. We are the Mac Power users and... Uh, uh, we will see you next week with more content and more shows. But for this week, uh, we thank our sponsors, Smile, Squarespace, Devon Technologies. Steve and I will be continuing with more Mac Power users for the subscribers. And uh, we'll see you next week.